Chapter Nine of the Defiant Agents by Andre Norton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Defiant Agents, Chapter Nine. Travis settled his back against the spire of rock and raised his right hand into the path of the sun, cradling in his palm a disk of glistening metal. Flash, flash. He made the signal pattern just as his ancestors a hundred years earlier, and far across space, had used trade mirrors to relay war alerts among the Chiricahua and White Mountain ranges. If Zoe had returned safely, and if Buck had kept the agreed lookout on that peak a mile or so ahead, then the clan would know that he was coming and with what escort. He waited now, rubbing the small metal mirror absently on the loose sleeve of his shirt, waiting for a reply. Mirrors were best, not smoke-fires, which would broadcast too far the presence of men in the hills. Zoe must have returned. "'What is it that you do?' Menlik, his shaman's robe pulled up so that his breeches and boots were dark against the golden rock, climbed up beside the Apache. Menlik, Hulagur, and Kedesor were riding with Travis, offering him one of their small ponies to hurry the trip. He was still regarded warily by the Tatars, but he did not blame them for their cautious attitude. Ah! A flicker of light from the point ahead. One, two, three flashes, a pause, then two more together. He had been read. Buck had dispatched scouts to meet them, and knowing his people's skill at the business, Travis was certain the Tatars would never suspect their flanking unless the Apaches purposefully revealed themselves. Also, the Tatars were not to go to the rancheria, but would be met at midpoint by a delegation of Apaches. This was no time for the Tatars to learn just how few the clan numbered. Menlik watched Travis flash an acknowledgment to the sentry ahead. In this way you speak to your men? This way I speak. A thing good and to be remembered. We have the drum, but that is for the ears of all with hearing. This is for the eyes only of those on watch for it. Yes, a good thing. And your people, they will meet with us? They wait ahead, Travis confirmed. It was close to midday, and the heat, gathered in the rocky ways, was like a heaviness in the air itself. The Tatars had shucked their heavy jackets and rolled the fur brims of their hats far up on their heads away from their sweat-beaded faces. And at every halt they passed from hand to hand the skin-bag of kumis. But even the ponies shuffled on with drooping heads, picking away in a cut which deepened into a canyon. Travis kept a watch for the scouts. And not for the first time he thought of the disappearance of the coyotes. Somehow, back in the Tatar camp, he had counted confidently on the animals rejoining him once he had started his return over the mountains. But he had seen nothing of either beast, nor had he felt that unexplainable mental contact with them which had been present since his first awakening on Topaz. Why had they left him so unceremoniously after defending him from the Mongol attack, and why were they keeping themselves aloof now, he did not know. But he was conscious of a thread of alarm for their continued absence, and he hoped he would find they had gone back to the rancheria. 
The ponies thudded dispiritedly along a sandy wash which bottomed the canyon. Here the heat became a leaden weight and the men were panting like four-footed beasts running before hunters. Finally Travis sighted what he had been seeking, a flicker of movement on the wall well above. He flung up his hand, pulling his mount to a stand. Apache stood in full view, bows ready, arrows on cords. But they made no sound. Kadesa cried out, booted her mount to draw equal with Travis. A trap! Her face flushed with heat was also stark with anger. Travis smiled slowly. Is there a rope about you, wolf-daughter? he inquired softly. Are you now dragged across this sand? Her mouth opened and then closed again. The quirt she had half raised to slash at him flopped across her pony's neck. The Apache glanced back at the two men. Hulagur's hand was on his sword-hilt, his eyes darting from one of those silent watchers to the next. But the utter hopelessness of the Tatar position was too plain. Only Menlik made no move toward any weapon, even his spirit-wand. Instead he sat quietly in the saddle, displaying no emotion toward the Apaches, save his usual self-confident detachment. "'We go on,' Travis pointed ahead. Just as suddenly as they had appeared from the heart of the Golden Cliffs, so did the scouts vanish. Most of them were already on their way to the point Buck had selected for the meeting-place. There had been only six men up there, but the Tatars had no way of knowing just how large a portion of the whole clan that number was. Travis Pony lifted his head, nickered, and achieved a stumbling trot. Somewhere ahead was water, one of those oases of growth and life which poked the whole mountain range to the preservation of all animals and all men. Menlik and Hulagur pushed on until their mounts were hard on the heels of the two ridden by the girl and Travis. Travis wondered if they still waited for some arrow to strike home, though he saw that both men rode with outward disregard for the patrolling scouts. A grass-leaf bush beckoned them on, and again the ponies quickened pace, coming out into a tributary canyon which housed a small pool and a good stand of grass and brush. To one side of the water Buck stood, his arms folded across his chest, armed only with his belt-knife. Grouped behind him were Decle, Soe, Nolan, Manolito. Travis tabulated hurriedly. Manolito and Decle would be classed together, or had been when he was last in the rancheria. On Buck's stairway from the past both had halted more than halfway down. Nolan was a quiet man who seldom spoke and whose opinion Travis could not foretell. Soe would back Buck. Probably such a divided party was the best Travis could have hoped to gather, a delegation composed entirely of those who were ready to leave the past of the Redax, a collection of Bucks and Jill Lees, was outside the bounds of possibility. But Travis was none too happy to have Deckley in on this. Travis dismounted, letting the pony push forward by himself to dip nose into the pool. "'This is,' Travis pointed politely with his chin, "'Menlik, who talks with spirits, Hulagur, who is son to a chief, and Kadesa, who is daughter to a chief. They are of the horse-people of the North. 
He made the introduction carefully in English. Then he turned to the Tatars. Buck, Declay, Nolan, Manolito, Tsoe, he named them all. These stand to listen and to speak for the Apaches. But some time later, when the two parties sat facing each other, he wondered whether a common decision could come from the clansmen on his side of that irregular circle. Declay's expression was closed. He had even edged a short way back, as if he had no desire to approach the strangers. And Travis read into every line of Declay's body his distrust and antagonism. He himself began to speak, retelling his adventures since they had followed Cadessa's trail, sketching in the situation at the Tatar-Mongol settlement as he had learned it from her and from Menlik. He was careful to speak in English so that the Tatars could hear all he was reporting to his own kind, and the Apaches listened blank-faced, though Tsoe must already have reported much of this. When Travis was done, it was Declay who asked a question. What have we to do with these people? There is this. Travis chose his words carefully, thinking of what might move a warrior still conditioned to riding with the raiders of a hundred years earlier. The Pindalik Oyi, whom we call Reds, are never willing to live side by side with any who are not of their mind, and they have weapons such as make our bow cords bits of rotten string, our knives slivers of rust. They do not kill, they enslave, and when they discover that we live, then they will come against us." Declay's lips moved in a wolf grin. This is a large land, and we know how to use it. The Pindalik Oyi will not find us." "'With their eyes, maybe not,' Travis replied. "'With their machines, that is another matter.' "'Machines!' Declay spat. "'Always these machines! Is that all you can talk about? It would seem that you are bewitched by these machines, which we have not seen, none of us.' It was a machine which brought you here," Buck observed. Go back and look upon the spaceship and remember, Declay. The knowledge of the Pindalik Oyi is greater than ours when it deals with metal and wire and things which can be made with both. Machines brought us along the road of the stars, and there is no tracker in the clan who could hope to do the same. But now I have this to ask. Does our brother have a plan? Those who are reds, Travis answered slowly, they do not number many, but more may later come from our own world. Have you heard of such arriving? he asked Menlik. Not so, but we are not told much. We live apart, and no one of us goes to the ship unless he is summoned. For they have weapons to guard them, or long since they would have been dead. It is not proper for a man to eat from the pot, ride in the wind, sleep easy under the same sky with him who has slain his brother. They have then killed among your people? They have killed, Menlik returned briefly. Cadessa stirred and muttered a word or two to her brother, who Lagur's head came up and he exploded into violent speech. What does he say? Declay demanded. The girl replied, he speaks of our father, who aided in the escape of three, and so afterward was slain by the leader as a lesson to us, 
since he was our white beard, the Khan. We have taken the oath in blood, under the wolfhead standard, that they will also die, Menlik added. But first we must shake them out of their ship-shell. That is the problem, Travis elaborated for the benefit of his clansmen. We must get these Reds away from their protected camp and out into the open. When they now go, they are covered by this collar, which keeps the Tatars under their control. But it has no effect on us. So again I say, what is all this to us? Declay got to his feet. This machine does not hunt us, and we can make our camps in this land where no Pindalik Oye can find them. We are not Dobe Gosontihi, invulnerable nor do we know the full range of machines they can use. It does no one well to say Doxada, this is not so, when he does not know all that lies in an enemy's wikiup. To Travis' relief, he saw agreement mirrored on Buck's face, Soe's, Nolan's. From the beginning he had had little hope of swaying Declay. He could only trust that the verdict of the majority would be the accepted one. It went back to the old, old Apache institution of prestige. A Nantan chief had the Goundi, the high power, as a gift from birth. Common men could possess horsepower or cattle power. They might have the gift of acquiring wealth so they could make generous gifts, be Ekandunsel Itzi, the wealthy ones, who spoke for their family groups within the loose network of the tribe but there was no hereditary chieftainship, or even an undivided rule within a rancheria. The Nagunulka Danata'an, or war-chief, often led only on the warpath and had no voice in clan matters save those dealing with a raid. And to have a split now would fatally weaken their small clan. Declay and those of a like mind might elect to withdraw, and not one of the rest could deny him that right. We shall think on this," Buck said. Here is food, water, pasturage for horses, a camp for our visitors. They will wait here. He looked at Travis. You will wait with them, Fox, since you know their ways. Travis' immediate reaction was objection, but then he realized Buck's wisdom. To offer the proposition of alliance to the Apaches needed an impartial spokesman and if he himself did that, Declay might automatically oppose the idea. Let Buck talk, and it would be a statement of fact. "'It is well,' Travis agreed. Buck looked about, as if judging time from the lie of sun and shadow on the ground. "'We shall return in the morning when the shadow lies here.' With the toe of his high moccasin he made an impression in the soft earth. Then, without any formal farewell, he strode off, the others fast on his heels. "'He is your chief, that one?' Cadessa asked, pointing after Buck. "'He is one having a large voice in council,' Travis replied. He set about building up the cooking-fire, bringing out the body of a split-horned calf which had been left them. Menlik sat on his heels by the pool, dipping up drinking-water with his hand. Now he squinted his eyes against the probe of the sun. "'It will require much talking to win over the short one,' he observed. 
That one does not like us or your plan. Just as there will be those among the Horde who will not like it either. He flipped water drops from his fingers. But this I do know, man who calls himself Fox. If we do not make a common cause, then we have no hope of going against the Reds. It will be for them as a man crushing fleas. He brought his hand down on his knee in emphatic slaps. So, and so, and so. This do I think also, Travis admitted. So, let us both hope that all men will be as wise as we, Menlik said, smiling. And since we can take a hand in that decision, this remains a time for rest. The shaman might be content to sleep the afternoon away, but after he had eaten, Hulagur wandered up and down the valley, making a lengthy business of rubbing down their horses with twists of last season's grass. Now and then he paused beside Cadessa and spoke, his uneasiness plain to Travis, although he could not understand the words. Travis had settled down in the shade, half dozing, yet alert to every movement of the three Tatars. He tried not to think of what might be happening in the rancheria by switching his mind to that misty valley of the towers. Did any of those three alien structures contain such a grab-bag of the past as he, Ash, and Murdoch had found on that other world where the winged people had gathered together for them the artifacts of an older civilization? At that time he had created for their hosts a new weapon of defense, turning metal tubes into blowguns. It had been there, too, where he had chanced upon the library of tapes, one of which had eventually landed Travis and his people here on Topaz. Even if he did find racks of such tapes in one of those towers, there would be no way of using them, with a ship wrecked on the mountainside. Only, Travis' fingers itched where they lay quiet on his knees, there might be other things waiting, if he were only free to explore. He reached out to touch Menlik's shoulder. The shaman half turned, opening his eyes with the languid effort of a sleepy cat. But the spark of intelligence awoken them quickly. What is it? For a moment Travis hesitated, already regretting his impulse. He did not know how much Menlik remembered of the present. Remember of the present. One part of the Apache's mind was wryly amused at that snarled estimate of their situation. Men who had been dropped into their racial and ancestral pasts, until the present time was less real than the dreams conditioning them, had a difficult job evaluating any situation. But since Menlik had clung to his knowledge of English, he must be less far down that stairway. When we met you, Cadessa and I, it was outside that valley. Travis was still of two minds about this questioning, but the Tatar camp had been close to the towers, and there was a good chance the Mongols had explored them. And inside were buildings, very old. Menlik was fully alert now. He took his wand, played with it as he spoke. That is, or was, a place of much power, Fox. Oh, I know that you question my kinship with the spirits and the powers they give. But one learns not to dispute what one feels here and here. 
His long, somewhat grimy fingers went to his forehead, and then to the bare brown chest where his shirt fell open. I have walked the stone path in that valley, and there have been the whispers. Whispers? Menlik twirled the wand. Whispers which are too low for many ears to distinguish. You can hear them as one hears the buzzing of an insect, but never the words. No, never the words. But that is a place of great power. A place to explore. But Menlik watched only his wand. That I wonder, Fox, truly do I wonder. This is not our world, and here there may be that which does not welcome us. Tricks in trade of a shaman, or was it true recognition of something beyond human description? Travis could not be sure, but he knew that he must return to the valley and see for himself. Listen, Menlik said, leaning closer. I have heard your tale, that you were on that first ship, the one which brought you unwilling along the old star-paths. Have you ever seen such a thing as this?" He smoothed the space of soft earth, and with the narrow tip of his wand began to draw. Whatever role Menlik had played in the present before he had been reconditioned to a shaman of the Horde, he had had the ability of an artist, for with a minimum of lines he created a figure in that sketch. It was a man, or at least a figure with general human outlines. But the round, slightly oversized skull was bare, the clothing skin-tight to reveal unnaturally thin limbs. There were large eyes, small nose and mouth, rather crowded into the lower third of the head, giving an impression of an over-expanded brain-case above. And it was familiar. Not the flying men of the other world, certainly not the nocturnal ape-things. Yet for all its alien quality, Travis was sure he had seen its like before. He closed his eyes and tried to visualize it apart from lines in the soil. Such a head, white, almost like the bone of a skull laid bare, such a head lying face down on a bone-thin arm clad in a blue-purple skin-tight sleeve. Where had he seen it? The Apache gave a sharp exclamation as he remembered fully. The derelict spaceship as he had first found it. The dead alien officer had still been seated at its controls. The alien who had set the tape which took them out into that forgotten empire. He was the subject of Menlik's drawing. Where? When did you see such a one? The Apache bent down over the Tatar. Menlik looked troubled. He came into my mind when I walked the valley. I thought I could almost see such a face in one of the tower windows, but of that I am not sure. Who is it? Someone from the old days, those who once ruled the stars, Travis answered. But were they still here then, the remnant of a civilization which had flourished ten thousand years ago? Were the Baldies, who centuries ago had hunted down so ruthlessly the Russians who had dared to loot their wrecked ships, still on Topaz? He remembered the story of Ross Murdoch's escape from those aliens in the far past of Europe, and he shivered. Murdoch was tough, steel-tough, 
yet his own description of that epic chase and the final meeting had carried with it his terror. What could a handful of primitively armed and almost primitively minded Terrans do now if they had to dispute Topaz with the Baldies? End of chapter 9